Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. Uh, we are back for a uh, another year, a new season, brand new episodes of the podcast. Today, I'm here with Dr. Phil Ward from The Ohio State University uh, to discuss an article I have been really looking forward to having a conversation about. It's titled An Analysis of Physical Education and Health Education Teacher Education Programs in the U.S. It was just published uh, over the summer in the early spring um, in the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. Um, I think this gives a really good overview of what the status of essentially PEAT programs, HEAT programs, so um, physical education, teacher education programs are in the U.S. Um, as always, the full citation is in the article notes. Phil, uh, thank you so much for coming on and uh, joining us to share about the research you conducted. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I just want to recognize my co-authors, um, Wan Sok Che, who just fortunately got a job at Adelphi, so he's all excited. In Sook Kim, who's at Kent State University, Amy Suter at West Virginia University, Bom Nico, who's at East Carolina, uh, Dina Deglo, who's in private practice, and uh, Kyu Yul Cho, who is in Korea uh, uh, right now. Awesome. Uh, so a great paper. Um, you give a really good overview of Heat and Pete. But before we go into the actual results, um, I'm wondering if you can start off by kind of telling us what the main criticisms of the effectiveness of teacher education programs. So where you and I work, what are the criticisms about teacher education in general and um, how, how are these changes that uh, people are proposing, how are they supposed to address these issues? Yeah, I think to understand the criticisms, we need to understand that where we are in, in teacher education today is a darn sight different than in 2000 and 1990 and even more different than 1980. Um, at least one thing is different is that we have fewer faculty in all of our programs. Uh, another thing that is hugely different is the amount of time in the undergraduate curriculum devoted to professional preparation. And I think the third one uh, is one we've always been guilty of. Um, Tom Peters said this in the management literature, Hal Lawson has echoed it pretty frequently since then. Um, if we, we're really bound historically by what we do, and if we came in today to create a teacher education program without the history we have in doing things, um, I don't know if we would design it the same way. Um, those three things lead to the just a, a basic criticism that we're not preparing teachers well enough for the worlds that they enter. Uh, that doesn't self the pedagogy and content, but it also includes understanding the diversity of students that we have, um, the sheer diversity in schools that they exist in and the communities they come from. Um, and you could also add on to that the issues that confront children today that in some ways didn't confront children, at least as overtly in the past. Um, so I think, I mean, just to give an illustration of the magnitude of the problem, um, I've researched fairly extensively content knowledge. Um, and I can say with uh, about 20,000 uh, students, uh, we've collected this data on pretty much worldwide, uh, um, about nine countries that are pretty representative of geographic areas of the world, that the average student comes into teacher education with a knowledge of movement, um, whether it's hula hooping or playing a sport 
or orienteering or whatever you might like to think with the knowledge of about in terms of just technique knowledge um, and tactics and rules and safety somewhere between 30 to 70 percent um, they're closer to 30 on sports like badminton tennis volleyball and they're closer to 70 on sports like basketball now if this were a letter grade and we're talking about the knowledge that you need to teach that that, that children in middle school, high school, and, and elementary need to perform this stuff, which is what these assessments were, these folks are at a C minus. Well, actually, they're at close to a failed grade majority yeah. of them coming into the university. When we've looked at what happens in the average teacher education program, we find that on a good year with the moons aligned, aligned well, they graduate with maybe 75 to 80% of the knowledge. Um, which puts them at a high C or low B, depending on where they are. There's one exception, and that's basketball. Um, there are other aspects of content knowledge that are even more depressing, but I won't go there with that. Suffice to say that there's good evidence, I think, um, and and I think anecdotally there's a lot of evidence that we're not preparing teachers as well as we should. And this is not a physical education issue. This is in every subject area, art, music, science. It's it's widespread. And, and at least one of the reasons is we don't have enough time. Mm -hmm. But the other big reason is what we spend our time on. Uh, I'm, I, I know I may get stoned for saying this, but I'm not sure that in professional focus, we need to be spending time on classes that are not directly related to helping a teacher teach tomorrow in schools. If I come back to content knowledge, I simply, I've said this so many times in the last 20 years, I don't know, but I simply don't believe that the average physical education teacher, in fact, physical education teachers need to know the level of anatomy and physiology that most of them are trained in. Mm -hmm. there, there's simply, is no circumstance where a physical education teacher would knowing the long head and the origin and insertion of the biceps, where that is useful for them as a teacher, um, nor knowing the rhomboid muscle, nor the function of the pancreas. These are not useful. Uh, they do need to know some things like um, lactic acid buildup if you're in an anaerobic environment. If the kids are sprinting or playing hard, they need rests and you know interval training is a good approach. But the vast majority of stuff they're learning in those areas are probably not useful um, to them as teachers. That may or may not be true if they're also a coach. If they're a youth coach, maybe not. But if they're a higher ranked coach, I could make a good case that knowing more would be a, an advantage. Um, the thing is that I've made that case for exercise science quite a lot, but I think it applies to a great deal of disciplinary classes, including psychology. Um, just to, just again, put myself in a stoning environment. Um, I'm not sure that I, I think we could all agree that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is really important information to know. But if you're not using it as a teacher, if it's not functionally operating in your lesson plans, in, in the way you interact with children, maybe you don't need to know it to be a teacher. Maybe it should belong in your general education, which, you know, is not an argument you shouldn't know it, but should you know it for teaching in that curriculum? And I'm a big proponent of a liberal education. I think uh, the narrowing of the of the curriculum in the general education curriculum in universities is not a good thing. But um, uh, I don't know if we can spend our precious time on things that are not going to help 
teachers do a better job interacting with students and teaching them um, what they're being paid to do. Yeah, and and there's definitely classes like literacy for physical educators. Like we have a class at Mason that teaches, you know, physical education students how to teach and integrate literacy. It doesn't go to all of the pedagogy of literacy, obviously, because specifically to PE. So it could be that biomechanics for physical education or what you need to know in anatomy, physiology, and how that relates to teaching PE and, you know, merging some of those some of those classes. I mean, that's a big curriculum redesign for sure. But I agree there are like if you're taking exercise science, like 450 or whatever, like a high, high, high level class, not a lot of that crosses over if you're going to end up teaching K to four physical education. You know, some of it does for sure. But yeah, yeah, I agree. I, you know, the the metaphor that I use is if you have two books side by side, one is a typical exercise science textbook, and one is say Chuck Corbin's Fitness for Life middle school or second or or high school book. Everything that's in Chuck Corbin is what is taught the kids. Teachers need to know a little bit more than that. That Chuck Corbin's book doesn't represent more than. I don't know, maybe a 15th of what's in the exercise science textbook. Mm -hmm. And it's stuff that children should be learning in schools. I mean, it's a brilliant book. And there are other books out there that are, you know, for teachers that are just as good. Um, The point is that we know we have defined the content that children need to know. Teachers need to know a little bit more than that. It, It would be extraordinary to ask an elementary school teacher teaching algebra to be really co- um, conversant in trigonometry. Yeah. And that's the metaphor here, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So what led uh, what led up to this study? I mean, what do we know about teacher education or PEAT in, in the US and where, where does your kind of study come in? You, you know, we, we, we have done a number of sort of um, uh, studies on teacher education, uh, Graeber and her colleagues, I did it a few years ago, I think 2017, I may be wrong on the date, a really nice study on teacher education faculty. And I think that's the go-to paper for looking at teacher, what's happening with faculty. Um, Metzler many years ago with, um, I don't remember who else he did it with, but Mike Metzler did a study on teacher ed and uh, it was a small sample. And there have been a couple of studies um, since then, but they have been samples. And the problem with samples is, well, if you're in a master's degree university versus a doctoral university, the hours you have available look different and everything you're doing looks different. So we we simply had no handle on what teacher education looks like in mass. And this is essentially a census study. I, I we we collected data on everybody we could. Um, and I, I estimate that we missed maybe about 5%. Those 5% might be errors on our part. They might be um, uh, programs that, that um, uh, well, we didn't, we didn't measure any master's programs, so they would be included in that. There aren't a great deal of those, but they're there. And um, those are probably the two groups we didn't get but i uh either sorry masters is a group we didn't get the errors we may have made i think are much lower uh on that five percent um most of it would be made up of masters programs 
Um, so we captured pretty much every university in the country offering PE and health. Yeah. So what do, what do we know in general? I mean, you, you said the, the Hausner paper um, came before, which was 2008, I think. Um, was the Hausner paper. You, you, we know a little bit about faculty through the Graeber 2020 paper. Um, yeah, so Hausner and Ayers 2008. So that was the last time they they knew that we kind of did a check-in that was published in 2008. That was probably information from a little bit before that. For We've been kind of going blind for the last 15 years or so about not understanding what the status of our program is. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I, I, and without that knowledge, you can't you can't look at the trends. You don't have a sense of policy. Mm-hmm. Um, what can be what what is happening? Um, and and I think um, Metzler and Friedman and Hausner and Ayers. I think those were really good snapshots of what we're doing. And for the most part, our study compared our results to them to mm-hmm. some degree. Um, uh, and and in in one sense we're all in the same ballpark and in another sense we're a little bit different uh disciplinary courses have increased not decreased which was a major shock to me i actually would have anticipated the reverse but uh that wasn't the case um uh what is what i think the one thing that is most worrying to me is in one sense the way we do teacher education today and in, in 2023 uh, is not much different than Hausner and Ayers reviewed or Metzler and Freeman. And that's, that's a significant problem when you consider, um, how math is done today, how social studies is taught today in good universities that produced students who can teach the subject matters that they're being trained in. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we haven't changed much at all. And I think that's almost exclusively a product of um, the historical influence on us. The other thing that influences teacher education are the CAPE standards or the various standards that a state might adopt. Those things tend to have the most influence on programs. And in our interviews with faculty, that's pretty much what they echoed. They're pretty much, um, actually, the, the, the most common sentiment was, we're trying to keep our heads down, get our work done with too few faculty, with, with massive responsibilities more than we've had before. We actually don't have time to sit down and have an honest look at what we're doing yeah. and why we're doing yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I can totally relate to that experience. Yeah. Mm. So let me, um, can you explain kind of the methods? You It was like a two-part study in the sense that you looked through all of the programs that you found um, through uh, various lists that you kind of confirmed with, and then you did a uh, internet search, essentially, kind of coded that stuff, and then you followed up and you interviewed one uh, university representative from each state, excluding Alaska, which I was surprised to hear that there is no undergraduate program in the state of Alaska that has physical education as a, as a, as a major. Yeah, they have an MAT program, but as I said, masters were included. So hard to know. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's a huge number of schools that are served in the MAT program or anyone moving to Alaska probably accounts for most of their new teachers, mm-hmm. I suspect. Um, yeah, we, 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 um, we, we captured, we went to the websites of everywhere. We had, um, 
questions we were asking on the websites. We downloaded programs. Sometimes we downloaded the program that wasn't mostly current. Uh, it might have been a year or two out of date, but they hadn't updated it. But in our in our interviews with people, uh, and our general sense is it wasn't that far out of date. It wasn't like yeah. there was a major change. Usually it was a truthfully a course change name rather than a new course substituted. But there were changes uh, here and there. Um, but we doubt we used that data. That data represents the program of study, which is a contract with all students who enter the program. And um, uh, that's what they get to get their degree. And uh, it's what their state has authorized that university to um, to offer. Um, so we did that. We then um, uh, randomly chose an, a person from each state. That, that random was sometimes took us three, four, five times to find a person. Um, uh, uh, we did this a little bit during COVID, so getting hold of people was was a little bit more difficult than um, uh, they might be if we did it today. But we we got hold of every state uh, and uh, we interviewed them. We cross checked the doubt the um, the data that we downloaded just to make as a simple sort of verification. And as I said, most of the time we were right on the money. And then we asked questions, um, a series of questions specific to their program. Um, and you know things such as who did their supervision, um, uh, how many methods classes that they they focused on, who did the teaching in those, um, whether they had health education, uh, how many credit hours, et cetera, et cetera, um, for that. And that gave us um, enough information for nine categories. Um, uh, basically, how the institution um, was classified and the program classified, where it was sort of. Um, housed uh, where College of Education versus, say, a kinesiology department, um, the degree dissertations, whether it was a Bachelor of Science in Education or a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of Education, um, number of degree hours and major hours, um, the break, uh, the enrollment, the enrollment program status and trends, how, um, how com- confident they were that they would be here in a few years. Uh, uh, let's see, pr- um, admission and graduation requirements, what assessments they used, uh, curricula, time and content, what they did in, in the name of that, some faculty demographics, and uh, we were particularly interested in health education as well. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll get to that. But when we go into the findings, can you start off by just saying what, what are the kind of characteristics of the different types of degrees we can find in PEEP programs? Because they, they seem to you know, you said some are in College of Education, then some are in Kinesiology, some are in Schools of Health, some are Bachelors of Arts and Science and Kinesiology. So it seemed like it was all over the place for a fairly simple It is all over thing. the place. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, I think this is a really good example of being bound by history. I, some of the degree names we came up with, we couldn't figure out where the heck they came from and nor could the people we were interviewing. Mm-hmm. They, their response was, this is just what we do. Some were the result of merging. So programs of physical, educa- um, physical education, recreation and dance moved to kinesiology and embraced um, the exercise science and perhaps other disciplinary sciences and it became a degree in kinesiology. Um, we, we found that most... Um, Programs were located close to 50% were located located in colleges of education, yeah. um, then school of health, and then they were everywhere, um, whatever the name of the department was. But um, in 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 
what surprised me is I thought more would be located in sort of movement kinesiology departments, but that tended to be not as much as I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, the degree names were everything, uh, physical education, kinesiology, as I said, Bachelor of Science in Education, Bachelor of Education. Uh, they had, um, they were a lot and they were distributed um uh, after after the main one, Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Science in Education or Bachelor of Arts. After that, they were about 6% in every label you could come up with. Yeah. So one of the concerning things, obviously, is this decrease in the number of PEEP programs. Um, do you have any understanding of, like, what are, what are the reasons for this issue or what kind of trend have we seen since the the Metzler-Friedman, then the Hausner heirs in the 2000 or 2008? Like, what? where are we now program-wise and what, why do you think that's happening? Yeah. In, in 2013, we had 642 programs. And um, at the start of our study, we thought we were dealing with 490 programs. So there's about 250 programs missing straight there from yeah. 2013 to now. But when we started our program, we found there were a further 73 programs that were no longer operating. So our list was 470 peak programs nationally. Um, and as I said, we're fairly confident that we're that we've got um, the majority of the programs, um, yeah. excluding masters. Um, so I think I think there are two or three reasons why the programs have closed. Um, there are a group of programs that have closed because. Well, there were just turf battles. People wanted their resources. Um, one program, uh, you know, it had two. Uh, let me back up. As faculty retired, they weren't replaced. There weren't enough people to run the program. Other programs wanted their resources, uh, and that's that represents a small amount. Um, but the uh, single biggest reason is: Are you making money for me uh, right. as a program in the university? And and that is almost directly tied to uh, the number of students you have in your program. Mm-hmm. The problem is, in the last six years, uh, well, actually, the last eight years, every program in the country, in every teacher education area, has lost numbers. Yeah. Uh, in California, I think they went close to 40% reduction in people entering teacher education uh, in all subject areas. PE has been hit particularly hard because generally speaking, we don't have a lot of people in our programs. You know, most programs are somewhere between um, 10, 20, you know, students a year, um, closer to 10 and some, closer to 20. Sunny Cortland is an extraordinarily exception. They have about 200 a year. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the range is pretty low. Um, generally, on average, I think... Um, We've got fewer people coming into teacher education, and this is at a time when there are, we need teachers more than ever, yeah. and when the people who are doing the teaching are not trained well uh, in our area. Um, so I, I, I think at the end of the day, the the causes are fairly clear. They're they're mostly economic. We just don't have enough in our uh, students coming into our program, but those causes are also bound by what's going on in larger society and and the fact that fewer people are coming into teaching um that is causing some significant concerns so in arizona uh, there's a school at mesa 
school district, I can't remember the full title, that district is now training its own teachers. Those teachers don't need to go to university. That's extraordinary because they can do so in a very short time. Undermine This undermines the professional knowledge that our field has. Um, it does focus on practice, but these sorts of folks are probably going to take a while um, to figure out how to be reflective and responsive and how to teach in an evidence-based way. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of challenges to teacher ed right now. And, um, I, you know, I can see teacher education getting a real boost in the coming years. Uh, as as school districts are saying, enough is enough. We need yeah. teachers. Well, and Arizona is also one of the the lowest paid for teachers. So, you know, when when you look at Arizona specifically, or some of these states that are in the very bottom quartile or very bottom ten percent of teacher pay, it you know you can't recruit people to go in to spend so much money to get a an, a degree in education only to be paid so so little, but. Um, so I wanted to go back to this range and enrollment. And, you know, you said the programs range from eight students to 928. And you talked about SUNY Cortland being that very outlier. So if we take SUNY Cortland out, which is just a massive, massive program with, I think you said, 19 faculty. Um, but if we look at the rest of the other programs, the median is about 58 students in the program. So you're graduating about that you estimated about 20 students a year. So the question you kind of ask is like whether programs with 58 students in them are large enough to withstand the pressures related to closure most often occurring because of fiscal reasons. So do you think that, you know, do you think that that 58 number is a healthy number like if you're pro like if somebody's listening to this a peep peep professor in some other university is listening to this and trying to gauge like where are their where's their program compared to the mean because we haven't had this conversation because we can't have the conversation before we have the data to have the conversation and so you know that's where mason is around somewhere around that depending on the year we're getting out about 15 to 22 a year we're hovering around that 60 mark um but what does that mean is that healthy should you have 100 should you have like are you good if you're 20 in a good school or how does that like what do we make sense of that number yeah i i mean i don't know how many people know hitchhike's guide to the galaxy but um uh, there was a famous scene in that where these classes would go black when when trouble occurred, and and the the the, the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book had "Don't panic" on it. I think that's the interpretation here. Don't panic. Um, I I think this is entirely local. Uh, I don't think there's any statewide or even uh, national trend on this. Um, what counts as a good program in some states? is considered you know crazy in our program so for example in the big 10 ohio state had one of the larger teacher education programs um but we're being closed um and our last program our last group cohort will be in four years and our numbers were um i mean my introductory pe class this year i've got 20 students um and that's considered not particularly viable at Ohio State, but most universities would go, that's great. That's that's going to break even. We're going to do, uh, we're going to be able to deliver um, quality programs with that. I think 
Um, it's very local. I know programs that have six or seven, um, but they've had six or seven for like the last maybe seven years. It's hard to know where we'll be down the road. Uh, my my general goal is to hang in there. Mm-hmm. And I think teaching is going to become, it, it is an attractive job. It, it, you have tenure. They're one of the few jobs that has tenure. Um you get you you can with some degree these days pretty much choose where you want to work. Um, I think there are big bigger challenges facing teachers today than we than we were facing in at least in terms of magnitude than they were facing a decade or two decades ago, and that is a reason why many teachers leave the field. Um, but I, I I you know a, a lot of the programs felt that they were safe and they had small to large you know, to the twenty numbers. Um, some programs were uh, about a third of the programs. I can't remember the exact statistics. Were were nervous, but not not worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a very small number that said we're um, we're uh, not likely to be here. The problem with that large number of starting at at six hundred and getting to four hundred and seventeen is for some of those programs. Um, I'm just going to talk about the state of Ohio and hope that nobody else is listening at these other uh, smaller universities in the state of Ohio. But in in 20 in 2020, we had 24 peak programs in the state of Ohio. It went down to about seven. And there are some programs I wish in the state of Ohio had never closed. But the vast majority of them, I don't have a problem with them closing. They had two or three students in them. They, they didn't have anyone employed as a physical educator. Uh, they, they did social studies for methods classes. Mm-hmm. They, their supervision was done by a PE teacher, but not the supervise, they weren't supervised by a PE teacher. Under those conditions, I think it's not a problem to say those programs weren't doing it. The problem is we lost some really good programs that were doing a great job. Uh, and, um, as best I can determine the state of Ohio, and I've tracked this now for about 15 years, the students, when a program closes, those students um, that would have gone to that program as freshmen that year, they actually don't finish up going to other universities to do PE. Yeah. I, I don't quite understand why, but there's, as everyone knows, there's a competition for who gets in your major and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, you know, like, um, uh, the market and they want to get as many people into their program versus another program. And, and so I, you know, I finish, I think they finish up going to the same university they applied to, but they just go, I'm going to do journalism or I'm going to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because like, I know California did the shakeup before I started working there. They kind of like shook the tree and kind of shut down some programs and they did regional like footprints, like, Cal State Fullerton was one, the Northridge was one, but San Luis Obispo was out. San Diego State was out. So, like, Cal State Fullerton, which is a two-and-a-half-hour drive from the Mexican border, was the southernmost teacher education program, and now, like, San Marcos is coming back in. And so they've kind of removed places, which is which is definitely scary. Like, as a professor, if you're at a university and all of a sudden they just say, well, you have tenure, but you're going to teach kinesiology 100 classes for four load mm. for the rest of your career. You know, like we can keep mm. your job here. But, you know, I, I, and I think those are those are tough scenarios. But, you know, even in Virginia, we have 21 programs and some of them have that 
two people and they have one faculty that teaches the vast majority of those classes for that and you know it's it's different than going to SUNY Cortland you know and so right right well we all want to be SUNY Cortland or maybe not uh with the numbers they have but I think this California San Marcos story is an interesting one when they closed um their their uh, provost said that Look, they recognized it was the lo- it was the only program in Southern California at the point at that mm-hmm. point in time. I think everything else had closed or it was the lowest program, uh, a, a southern, southern most lowest program. And their provost said, look, we know we need teachers and we know that teachers make a difference, but we can't afford to run it. Yeah. And now that it's coming back, I think this represents an indication of the sense that we need teachers and and programs. I know some states, I think North Carolina gave gave or is still giving money to people who get good scores on their graduation and for teaching and bonuses for, for in, to coming into teaching. I think we're going to see more of that. Um, uh, the best thing we could do to get um, folks in the programs would be for state governments to give tuition-free education yeah. for teachers. Yeah. Uh, I've thought long and hard about this and I can't see any other way we're going to get teachers, um, uh, uh, given the way that everything's moving right now. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. A lot I'm of okay with that. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. I think it's great. Um, so now, certainly, it's cost. I mean, just get, cut back here. When a teacher leaves, or if you have to train a teacher, the cost to the district. In a district like Chicago, are in the multi multi millions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So that money is is at the end of the day coming from the state, and yeah. that would be better spent on hiring teachers uh, on on giving getting teachers into teacher education. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, so, what are the different structures of curriculum and the requirements that PEAT students need to uh, complete to get their degree and to be able to teach PE? I know this again which I think is a common theme here. Like the U.S. is almost like the wild, wild west of teacher education programs. You have something that's really lax, something that's, you know, 180 credits and other places, half of that, you know, so it's it's just kind of all over the place. But what what are what are students taking? What's the kind of curriculum that they go through? Yeah, I, I think um, we're at the end of the day, we're more similar we have some outliers uh it i don't understand why we have some of these outliers but for the most part most majors range um uh are, are between um 50 to 134 uh, sorry most general ed is between 50 to 134 credit hours and the average major time is 70 credit hours <coughs> some are really low some are as low as 34 some are as high as 102 um, they're all on semesters, but um, for the most part, um, I think you could say 90, uh, sorry, 85 to 90% are about the 70 hours is a darn sight less than unused to have. So, you know, one of these things that you, you put in here, you said it's problematic that pre-service teachers and Pete spend only 14% of their time learning the content they are to teach and it's probably the reason why studies of the content knowledge of teachers typically indicate that they are not knowledgeable in the content they teach 
can you expand on that? Like, what do you mean by the, like, what, what would count as the content they are to teach? Like, are you talking pedagogy sure. or? So, oh, no, no, I'm talking, um, I'm talking exclusively about <clears throat> the content you would teach children in schools. So Daryl Seedentop was uh, just a, a very strong proponent that what should be taught in teacher education principally was what you should be teaching in schools. So his argument was that you've got to know that content fairly well. Whether it, 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 you can argue whether it's a, a individual sport or a group a sport or an individual activity, that's not the argument. The, it doesn't really matter what it is in one sense, in the sense that um, it's not being taught well anywhere um, in, in whatever it might be. But the, the, the argument is that if you want to teach, um, for example, racket sports, then you should have a good understanding of how to teach racket sports. Instead, I'm sorry, and the two problems with that 14% is that uh, most universities teach somewhere between, uh, they have semester-long class. Um, if it's three credits, it could be one or two credits as well. But if it's a three-credit class, they normally teach somewhere between three to five, closer to five than three content areas in there. So uh, you might be doing volleyball, basketball, um, uh, uh, badminton and, and tennis or some other. But the amount of time you're spending in it is maybe three weeks. Yeah. Uh, we have essentially, um, I'm, a, I'm a fairly big critic of the multi-activity curriculum in schools, but in the way we train teachers, what they have to teach in schools, we have the multi-activity mm -hmm. curriculum in higher ed. Um, and, and it's one reason, I think, why our students um, come into university, those that are predisposed to, to being physically active and teaching physical education, they don't know the content they're teaching from 12 years of schooling. And in teacher education, we do a very job, not not that good, but in some cases better than better than others at improving that knowledge. Um, but you know, just given to put this in perspective, the data we've got on content show that the average student graduates with maybe a B minus in knowing the content they've got to teach in school, how to teach throwing, catching, striking, um, uh, adventure-based learning if that's what they're doing, uh, soccer or football, whatever it is, they don't know it very well. And if you, I, don't, I doubt any of us would let a car mechanic who got a C minus or a C plus on their instruction, let alone a doctor, uh, work on our car or work on us. Um, so you know, I think that's the fundamental, uh, you know, what I call the reproducibility problem. If we're graduating people who don't know their content, um, then it's not surprising the students who enter our programs don't know their content. Um, some other reasons for that, but I think this is just as true for curricular models. I think uh, Daryl and Larry Locke many years ago wrote a really nice paper, I think it was 94 in Joford, and they basically said you can't be all things. You can't possibly cover all of the curriculum models. So why not just stand for something and, and go for it? So Kent State University in, in my state in Ohio, they're known for teaching games for understanding. You know that every one of their students is going to graduate from that program can do that model. 
our program is sport education. I mean, we do other models as well, like BL yeah. and 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 so on. But we only we limit it quite, mm-hmm. you know, um, for life for Chuck Corbin. Those are the things we focus on. I don't think you can do everything, um, and I think that's also true for content. Um, and uh, uh, but I don't I don't believe. Um, I think content and curric- I think curricular models are darn hard to teach in teacher education. Yeah. I really do. And in fact, undergraduate curriculum, helping students understand that where they have, without having first been in a school is uh, almost an impossibility. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, content is something we can do, but we can't teach everything. We would be better off saying, here is a general approach to teaching invasion games, uh, racket sports, individual target sports, individual activities, rather than trying to teach basketball, volleyball, or, or whatever. Um, I may be using one of them as a model, but saying the approach is this. Pedagogy, I think we do a pretty good job on. Um, I think uh, the folks of the Seedon Top, Larry Locke um, generation, I think they taught us to do good pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a good handle on that, I think, as a field. Um, uh, but the rest of it is a real mishmash of of stuff, um, and it looks diff- a little bit different each university. So let me switch a little bit to that faculty conversation. What what did you find as the characteristics of faculty teaching and supervising our pre service teachers in the PEEP programs? Yeah, um, we were a, a little bit surprised here um, uh, uh, about. Um, or uh, about, I'm just doing my math here, about 80% are, are tenure-track faculty and the rest are um, uh, lecturers or part-time faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, distribution between males and females is, is, is a little bit higher. On the female side, we found about um, 40 Four percent were female, and and uh, about thirty six percent were male. That looks different, uh, as you can imagine, each universities. And this data, it's not the census data. This data is the data from interviews. So it represents forty nine universities in the country. Yeah. And as I said earlier, I think Kim Graber's study is probably more accurate um, uh, uh, than ours. They had a larger sample. Yeah. Um, but. What we found is the majority of them were white, um, uh, uh, African Americans, and and uh, black or African Americans were, uh, were somewhere around five uh, percent for female and about two percent for males. Um, Asians were about a similar amount, about five percent for males and females. Le- Hispanic, Latino, or Spanish were lower. Um, we found no Native American Indians, but again, this is from forty nine states um programs one program in each state and we found um uh pacific islanders uh but in states like hawaii not Mm -hmm. um not mainland for the most part so you know basically what we concluded from this is we are very white and this represents some rather bothering issues um at least one issue is that if we talk the game of diversity we need to be hiring diverse faculty that's important because if we want to have diverse students in our program they need to see diverse faculty in our program in every way we mean that diversity not just race and ethnicity but um 
gender uh, and and uh, posi- political positions. We need to be diverse because mm. that's the world we're theoretically creating for everybody, yeah. um, and the, and the world that they'll be inhabiting. So um, we were pretty critical of um, search committees for not going above and beyond um, and hiring. Um, more minorities. Um, our our um, dean at Ohio State, um, Dean Pope Davis, when he came to Ohio State, uh, he's an African American, and he said, "You people aren't walking the talk." And he proceeded to immediately hire a minority uh, black and and um, uh, Hispanic and and um, uh, Native Americans uh, to our to our faculty. He made it a priority. Uh, he also doc, uh, postdoctoral scholars, 21 a year uh, into our programs. Uh, that began to change who we, uh, our, our, our face of our faculty. We're still principally white, but there's simply more um, diversity than we had. We, as faculty, we need to recognize that, welcome um, our, uh, the diversity that's out there and get them in here. But it also means making sure we educate people in doc programs who are diverse and finding ways to support them um, economically in our programs. Yeah. So one of the things that you know we talked about on the PEAT Collaborative is about health education and how it fits within PEAT. And you've had um, some comments there about how health has kind of been thrown in and not given it enough room to actually be taught uh, effectively, what did you find in uh, looking at how health is integrated into uh, PEAT programs? Yeah, um, let me let me um, step back a little bit with that question and say that I think our field made the most terrible of decisions when we split when PE and health split from each other and from recreation. I think we 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 are essentially. Um, what might be called the ludic arts. Uh, we're tied to education. We're tied to movement. We're tied to health behaviors. And um, I think we didn't do well doing that. And and um, if physical education is in crisis, health education is um, a disaster area. Um, uh, it, it the the number of classes that you can take um, the credit hours I think for health range um, uh, from um, uh, I think six to thirty three yeah. uh, credit hours and and the mean is fifteen given given you know the the drug crisis in America the uh, obesity crisis uh, the um, fact that young children don't don't feel as strong as they they can be in terms of the decision making um and health in my view is the one subject area where its primary outcome is to help young people make decisions interpret what's out there and make a decision and be critical be reflective if they made a good decision and be prepared to change it if they didn't like it i don't know any other subject area that that focuses on that um and to me that's more important than any of the content areas of health um, but uh, health is not is not teachers are not trained well in pedagogy or, the, or what they're teaching um, they, their field experiences are minimal uh, in some states you can get a health um, uh, you can teach health without any health licensure um, uh, I won't name the state but it, it's 
to the east of Ohio, a couple of steps. Um, but uh, there are real problems with hell. And adding on to that, I don't know of any PhD programs that are training health educators. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be. I'd, uh, they're probably trained in sort of a combination degree. But you have states like um, Michigan that now requires a single health and PE program. And they're struggling to find health educators to work yeah. in their programs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Pennsylvania has an option like that. And then you've got universities like Wright State University in my state that has a combined PE and health degree. I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of locking in the same number of credit hours to fit two content areas. I'd rather at Ohio State we do it as an add-on and we have, I think, 30 hours or something for the add-on. Uh, and it can still be done in four years. I, d- I don't want to diminish either health or PE um, hours, um, but it's a it, it, it's a it's a crisis for us, and we're going to pay the price because um, children um, are just not being well educated in making good decisions, and uh, they're not being well educated in um, a health education content areas. Yeah. And, Would you think um, that health or, is one of the least preparation that we do across the nation and standalone subjects because if you think about like math and oh, english absolutely. you're yeah. you're having years of classes if you're becoming that teacher but then health is like the average is 15 credit hours that's a semester that you learn then i mean you might be teaching majority health if that's what you want to teach and that's how it fits and because you get a license in both health and physical education if you if you do that and i don't think a lot of the programs even have student teaching at the same level. Like if you do student teaching, the vast majority is in physical education, especially at the elementary school. And then, hey, we'll give you some health classes to balance it out, but you still get licensed in both. Oh, I, I totally agree. Uh, and and um, we're as guilty of that at Ohio State, although I, I think we're one of the better programs out there. Um, in PE, you have seven field experiences, including student teaching, semester-long field experiences. Um, in your PE program in health, we have two. Mm-hmm. And uh, one is student teaching and one is a methods class. And the methods class isn't really a semester-long. Yeah. So, you know, we're underserving health big time Uh and uh, I don't think there's – there are very few universities in the country. I can think of some exceptions, but very few in the country that are doing health well. Yeah. So when we come into your uh, conclusion part of this paper, you, you talk about three pressing issues that come from your findings of your paper. Um, I'm wondering if you can start with the program closures. You already mentioned a little bit about the reasons this might be happening, but what do you think we can do as possible strategies to address this issue? Well, Alabama and Texas have no shortage of of people in their programs because to be a football coach, you've got to be a teacher. And physical education teaching is seen as you know somewhat akin to coaching, but it also might be considered a bit easier. I'm not suggesting that's the way we should go, uh, uh, but there might be there might be something there. Um, the second the the second area of of addressing this, I I also want to suggest that I think it's very local. Um, even within within states, it's local. Uh, and there's some some of the solutions. Um, I know that West Virginia University have been doing a lot of marketing over the years, and I'm not sure of how successful that has been. But I think um, 
they would keep doing it. Um, but truthfully, I think the 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 two best ways we could move forward um, with with increasing teacher numbers. One is, as I said earlier, um, making um, uh, uh, education uh, being a teacher free. Uh, and the second one is getting doing away with our fourth year of teaching, placing our students as interns directly into schools under the supervision of a teacher, paying them as uh, uh, money for for teaching. So you might have two student teachers working with one teacher, but in that school, those students could then go into that district and take on classes in that district. The district would be investing. In them, um, and as I mentioned earlier, millions of dollars are wasted every year, and they taxpayer money for the most part uh, on on the training of teachers. I don't, unless we make it economically useful, a viable for people to come into teaching. I'm not sure um, that the pathway is as as easy as we as um, not easy. I, I'm not sure the pathway is open enough to invite enough people in. But we, we certainly have got to um, perhaps collaborate with districts, but not, not to the extent that we allow districts to do the training, but right. to be there in old professional development model. Um, I don't know of any other ways that um, work. I know that in Arizona, Hans Vandermars went out and went to high schools and tried to recruit students. And I, I think that's a really good idea. I just don't know if we've all got time to go out to all the high schools yeah. in the state in the yeah area and do that recruiting or have people go in and do that um yeah uh, yes. uh, I, that's the solution i can think yeah. of the the intern model works for some people for sure but it, it does have critics so people are saying like you know students are not ready you're you're then kind of going to that teach for america like hey let's learn how to teach by teaching these kids and a lot of times uh, again, there's a lot of different ways to do the intern model. When I was at Cal State Fullerton, you could apply to do that like emergency credential intern program. So you're just teaching. And a lot of the teachers that took that route, and not everybody was approved, but those that did, they really lacked a mentor at the school. They just They just rolled with it. They needed the money. They couldn't take the whole year off to, you know, not get paid and do a student teaching semester so they went in got paid but they were just left by themselves and there wasn't a full supportive you know person coming in right. value yeah, i'm not in, so. i'm not in favor of that yeah, yeah. I, I i prefer the old professional development model it simply extended from one semester to two semesters there's a university faculty member in the school you've got um let's take a middle school and let's just say it's a sizable middle school and there are two classes of pe offering there are four students in the school uh, working with the teachers. There's a university supervisor keeping a track of them. Um, maybe the university supervisor is there for half a day every week or a third of the day every day. Sorry, half a day um, every day or every other day or in the in the school supporting them. They meet with the university before supervisor before school or after school and with the teachers. It's a collaborative team. Uh, I might add that has shown to have good effects on teachers as well as um, students um, I think that's a very that's a very viable system I'm, I'm absolutely not in favor of throwing um, students to the wolves and having them work with cooperators yeah. on their own um, 
but I do want to point out that many programs are only a three-year program, and um, we're talking about the third year being out. If we wanted to have a better, deep program, maybe we could make, spend more time on the first year uh, doing some PE stuff, and then the second and third years, big big physical education area and health, and then um, they spend a year in schools. Um, in Australia, when I did my degree, we spent three years in the degree. Then we went out and we couldn't come back to finish our bachelor's for two years. We had to teach for two years and then come back mm. and do a bachelor's for one year. When we came back, we knew what we were, what, what yeah. we had walked into. And yeah. uh, we were different uh, students because of that, I think. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you clarified that uh, in turn, because I know that that word has a lot of different meanings in what that could look like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the second issue you discuss is the lack of diversity of teacher education faculty. We talked about this a, a little bit already. Is there anything that um, we didn't cover that you feel like um, is important for this pressing issue that you, you talk about in the conclusion? I think we need to live our values and hire diverse faculty, and we need to do that intentionally. Mm-hmm. And and it might, in fact, be at the expense of hiring other faculty. It always will be. But um, if we believe we that we want a diverse environment, we're going to have to hire diverse folks. And um, uh, we have a history of, in fact, not doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so the last issue you write about is the uh, problem of peak curriculum. Can you explain the main aspects of the peak curriculum that are concerning and tell us how research can support uh, change in the peak program, uh, programs? Yeah, my um, my biggest criticism, criticism, I should say, of of peak faculty and peak researchers is we have divorced ourselves from the larger field of teacher education. Um, most of our graduates. In a, in, from PhD programs are unfamiliar with the works of Marilyn Cochran Smith, Deborah Ball, Pam Grossman, and a host of other folks. And all of these folks have been pushing for the redesign of teacher education. And um, I don't think we talk enough about that in teacher education. I don't think the average programs are aware of what's going on in other in other areas. Uh, and I I think that we have allowed ourselves to to be driven by our history. And one area is disciplinary knowledge. Um, another area um, that we, we could focus on greatly is looking at the way we introduce the practice of teaching to our students. We we don't need to have a large number of field experiences. We can, uh, it, it's a good thing, but we can also do more on campus teaching peers. Um, the practice-based teacher education movement is something I would draw everyone's attention to. Adaptive teaching is really important. We used to, um, back in the 80s, use a prescriptive approach. We used to, in the 90s, use uh, mid-80s, use active teaching. But adaptive teaching simply says that the context you're about to walk into is going to be similar but not the same as what you've just been trained in. The students are going to vary in different ways you've got to adapt both within the lesson and to the next time you teach the lesson. Now, math, science, history, social studies, programs across the country are way ahead of us in physical education in that area. Not all programs are ahead of us, um, are, sorry, are doing that, but, but the best programs are doing that. That adaptation 
and tied to reflection is probably the two most important things, outcomes we want from a teacher, from a, a student graduating this year. That is, what have I got? How do I can meet, how can I meet the students where they are? This student's distressed, this student's skillful, this student is less skilled, um, it, just adapting. Uh, and I don't, I, I think getting away from a, 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 the prescriptive, I'm a big favor of moving from a prescriptive approach, yeah. but I don't think you should stay prescriptive for very long. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Phil, I, I want to thank you for this because I think it's one, thanks for coming on the podcast Two, thanks for doing this research, because I, I feel like it, this gives the kind of strength that you can go up when difficult decisions are being made you can go in and say like well we are in this group we are in this average this is what we know about the size of programs about the number of students and programs and i feel like it's such a good resource to have the lay of the land for policy for you know different decisions to be made instead of you know relying on something that's 15 years outdated so i feel like you know you You've done a huge service to the community of peat educators in the U.S. to understand. I think that this is such a such a great resource. So I really, really appreciate you uh, you doing the work with your colleagues. Yeah, I, I just want to acknowledge my colleagues again because it was a real team effort, and yeah. uh, it took us a few uh, years to get our act together for that. But it was good. I'm sure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. So um, I'm going to put the link to the article in the show notes so people can see that. Um, and I want to thank, as always, Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. Uh, thanks, Phil. Appreciate you. Take care. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.